So our reading is from Daniel chapter 6, which is page 890 of the Church Bibles. Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, Oh, King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisers and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the degree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learnt that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment brought before him, as he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, 
Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then... King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures... Well, well what does tomorrow hold uh, for you? An autocratic management who can be difficult... Uh, jealous colleagues or fellow students who really have it in for you, uh, a place where it's not cool to be a Christian and you're a bit isolated, you don't know anybody else in your class or in your tutor group or your subject group who is also a believer and sometimes you may well wonder whether there is a God and whether he is really in charge of everything. Or maybe you are single and you live alone and there's no one to come home to to offload the day. Or maybe you are ageing, entering perhaps the final quarter of your life, slipping to the margins and you feel you're being written off. Well, this is an event... Um, if that's an event in your life tomorrow, it resonates with Daniel's life in all those situations because he had a number of really capricious rulers that he worked for, the kind of guys who uh, you don't really know quite where you are with them, but it's not a case of uh, they might come out with, you're fired. They're more likely to come out with, off with his head because they had absolute power as well as an unpredictability. He had extremely jealous colleagues who actually, we'll see, conspired against him. He was a foreigner, he was ethnically different and that, of course, aggravated his rivals even more. It seems that he was single. There is no mention of a wife or family. And given that it's now 60 years since he was carted off as a teenager um, from Jerusalem to exile in Babylon, that it's quite likely that his best friends who'd gone with him, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, may well have died. So, at about 80 plus, it would seem from chapter 5 that we saw last week that he had been pushed to the margins under Belshazzar. And with this new ruler, it was similarly dangerous to display exactly where your primary allegiance lay. 
how he lives out that primary allegiance and navigates his life at such a high level in that empire is very instructive to observe. And then there's Darius, the new king. Where does he stand in the pecking order? Is he open to change in the face of the evidence that he's about to encounter in Babylon? And then if he does so, will he declare it to everybody else? And then there is the perspective of the Most High God, as he's called. It's as well to be clear on his perspective. Daniel and Darius are interesting and they are instructive. But what's really important, always in the Bible, is the perspective of the Most High God and how his plan of salvation is going to be worked out. Remember that plan of salvation? It started with Abraham back about 2000 BC. God chose a man and his wife, and they were to be the start of a new people through whom the whole world will be won back to him. For millennia, human beings, since the very days of Adam and Eve, the very first human beings, had been on spiritual walkabout. They'd gone and done their own thing. But with Abraham and Sarah, the rescue mission begins in earnest. God was good to his people, but they drifted away from him from time to time. And this all happened far too frequently and got to the point around about sort of, um, yeah, the late sort of, um, around about 600 BC, give or take a decade or so, depending on uh, which invasion you're thinking of that um, God got to the point where he thought 70 years or so in exile as a punishment would bring them to their senses. And God allowed the Babylonians to rise up and to defeat the Jews and drag off many of their people, particularly their young, to exile. And during that time, they learned from leaders with the example of people like Daniel. And chapter 6 comes at the end of this period of exile. So from God's perspective, he's at a point where he's thinking, how is he going to enable the exiles to return to their promised land, to rebuild his temple, to mark his presence there with them on earth? And we saw last week that under King Belshazzar, that was never going to happen. He had to go, and go he did. The Babylonians had uh, served their purposes um, as far as God was concerned, and he allowed a new empire to arise, that of the Medes and the Persians. And it would be through them that God was able to work to enable the people to go back to their land, to rebuild their temple, to know his presence with them, and to be on track again to lead up to the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the saviour of the world. From God's perspective, this chapter shows how he changed the life of Darius so that Darius cooperated with God in fulfilling his plans. Now, I think I mentioned last week that King Darius in verse 1 and Cyrus in verse 28 
are most likely the same person. It is possible that they could be two different people, in which case Darius is the governor-general of Babylon, Cyrus is the king of the Median and Persian Empire. But it is perhaps more likely that they are one and the same person. Darius is his Median name or nickname, and Cyrus is his Persian name. You do actually have that in another occasion in the Bible, in 732, when a guy called Pul, P-U-L, became uh, king of Assyria. He acquired a really classy-sounding name, Tiglath-Pileser III. If you're looking for a biblical name for any children, <laughs> consider it. So for Daniel, it's a case of carrying on and doing what God wants. And for God, it's about achieving his plan of salvation through his people in his place. And for Darius, it's coming out of the cold and converting to the living God and helping in fulfilling God's plans and purposes. Well, let's get the story clear in our heads. There's a new regime, verses 1 to 3. Darius has become the king of Babylon, in addition to a rather massive empire that he has already established. You don't get to positions like that without being a, a rather shrewd judge of character and of competence. And under Belshazzar, the kingdom of Babylonia had been on the skids. It was corrupt. It was self-indulgent. It's very rare that you get an empire where the grandson is greater than um, the one who established it. Somehow or other, it does fizzle out. And it was collapsing, as most empires have in the history of the world, from within, which makes it dead easy for an outside force to ride in and take over. Daniel, doubtless, had a reputation. And although he was 80-plus and on the margins, he was brought back in to a very senior position in the government. He was one of three administrators under whom 120 provincial governors operated. We read of Daniel that he was distinguished, verse 3, in comparison with the other two. And Daniel, with his exceptional qualities, we read, that the king had planned to set him over those two and, in fact, the whole kingdom. So he would then be, like we would call, prime minister. Under the monarch, he is the top guy. So Dan would be number two to the king. It's possible for a believer to occupy the position, such a high position in such a government. It's very challenging. It's very difficult. And Daniel would have to recognize that Darius was an absolute monarch, but he knew that government is a good thing and that Christian believers should serve in the government. But always remembering that there is a higher authority than the government. The most high God rules. For much of the time, there would be no problem. In fact, advice from civil servants such as Daniel may well have been able to make a positive difference. But it is possible 
that such a ruler may get ideas above his station and claim for himself what is in fact reserved for the Most High God alone. That would place a believer in a challenging position. In Daniel's case, as we'll see, does he obey the king or does he carry on doing what he knows God wants? Or does he obey God and risk all? And that brings us to the plot, verses 4 to 15. Daniel became a target of jealousy. Why? Well, obviously professional jealousy. He was more competent than they were in his conduct, verse 4, of government affairs. And it mentions that there was no evidence that uh, he was negligent. There's also a racial prejudice in play. He was an immigrant with a virtually unrivaled position. He's heading for the prime role under the king. Grounds enough for envy and resentment from any native. And there's reference in verse 2 for the need for the king not to suffer loss, which suggests that there had been corruption. Something, verse 4, which was absent from Daniel's CV. The whole of the 60 years in which he had been in various kings' service. In fact, he'd, he had a reputation for being, quote, trustworthy. So Daniel's character is impressive. Not open to corruption. Someone you could trust to do the job that you've given him to do. Competent and not negligent. Like cream. Real talent whether it's in terms of ability or obvious in terms of character and stature, it rises to the top, and his did. And it is resented by lesser mortals. His rivals would have had their spies all around Daniel. He lived a very public life. And yet we read that they could dig up no dirt at all. No skeletons, no weaknesses. They may have had similar ability, but their characters were mightily deficient. They were no match for Daniel. They had the ability, though, to work out how to get him. And paradoxically, for Daniel, his high principles would turn out to be the death of him, or at least the attempted death of him. So they engage in a bit of sycophantic flattery with this new king. I mean, people who are in positions, um, if they're the top dog in an organization, they are often quite isolated, and they don't know what people are thinking. And they may well even have uh, moments of insecurity. So they like being sucked up to. And... Uh, They like that very much. And so these people gang up. We read verse 7 that they all agreed. And they put forward to the king, not only sort of telling him how wonderful he is, but they're actually, uh, they put up a plausible as well as an ego-boosting suggestion. We've got a new king. We've got a new empire. Let's do something to unite all these diverse people. Ah, that sounds good. 
So the proposal is that for 30 days, the only person that the people of the empire can pray to is the king. Nobody else. Just for 30 days, nobody else can you pray for. And the king swallows that. In fact, he's quite happy to issue an edict and a breach of that will mean the lion's den. You may remember that the Babylonians in chapter 3, their particularly, um, their most horrific mode of execution was to chuck people into burning furnaces. That's because the Babylonians built their great ziggurats and things with bricks. They had to make them. The Persians, their preferred horrific method of execution was to chuck you in with the lions and watch what happened. Because the Persians were particularly keen on lion hunting from horseback, you'll see in their reliefs. There are some in the British Museum and uh, where they're, uh, they're hunting the Asiatic lion, which is a bit smaller than the African one. And these lions that they've got there may well be the cubs, the bereaved cubs of those lions they've killed on one of their hunts and they're rearing them for release. Well, the decree is written. Everyone will know. Importantly, it's written down so that it can be used by his court to hold him to account and to make him, therefore, execute the laws which he has been persuaded to pass. So Daniel is nicely set up. And they know he's going to carry on praying. He didn't court martyrdom. He's not recorded as saying he'll disobey. He doesn't make a great public display of his prayers. He simply carries on doing what he's always done. And he prays from his room, which is on the first floor, so not immediately obvious for people to see. And he does it three times a day, morning, noon, and night. He's facing west to Jerusalem because that's where his hope lays. His people back home and those like himself and his generations and the ones after him who have been promised by God that they will return there to re-establish the people of God in their land with their temple in the presence of God. And that is Daniel's focus in life, working out his part in the plans and purposes of God, which he is convinced will happen. Well, it wasn't difficult, and a group of them come and find that Daniel is, quote, praying and asking God for help, verse 11. They return to the king. They remind him of his royal decree. The king remembers it and its punishment, and he confirms it is the law. And then they tell him who's transgressed it. Daniel, he's not obeyed. He's carried on praying three times a day. And of course, they can't resist a bit of exaggeration to the point of complete distortion by adding, he, pre he pays no attention to you, O king, which is clearly not true. Darius, though, is trapped. You see, he set up one law for the empire to be executed without fear or favor. There's no uncertainty about it because they managed to get him to write it down. It can't be evaded by judges or kings. But Daniel knew a higher law 
and his loyalty is to a higher law made him very vulnerable in that pagan society. And his enemies have been quick and smart to exploit it. Well, now Darius is trapped by his own law, but he's about to discover the source of the higher law. Though the plotters don't allow Darius off the hook, verse 15. They don't let him just have a little chat with the boys. We're just um, hushed up. They don't let him out off that easily. So we find ourselves in the den, verses 16 to 24. Darius is trapped in a corner with no way out. He has to execute the law, verse 16, so he gave the order to have Daniel thrown into the den of lions. But he clearly doesn't want to. He knows Daniel. He has seen his character and competence and his integrity in operation. He knows Daniel is not just a good man, he is the best man in his kingdom. But the conspirators have trapped him and he has to execute the law. But he says to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. And we note that a stone is placed over the mouth of the den. And both the king and the nobles seal it with their signet ring so that they would know if anyone had tried to let Daniel out during the night. Can you think of a similar part of the Bible where uh, such things happen? Well, the plotters return home, no doubt smug. Darius goes home with a very unsettled conscience. He couldn't sleep, he didn't eat, and there was no entertainment. At first light, Darius hurried, verse 19, to the lion's den. When he came near to the den, he called out to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lion's den? I think Darius has moved from hoping to believing that it was possible. And he's recognized that there is a living God. What a wonderful relief for him when he hears Daniel's voice, verse 21. O king, live forever. May God send, uh, my, my God, and he says to the king, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. So the king, verse 23, is overjoyed. Daniel's lifted out of the den. The lions haven't touched him. The king orders that those who've borne false witness that they end up chucked in as a punishment and a great deterrent to lying. And just to show that the lions had been hungry when Daniel was with them, what happens? The lot who are chucked in are immediately overpowered and crushed. Well, Darius, drawn by Daniel's character, competence, and trustworthiness, and his obedience to the king, but loyalty to an even higher authority, impress him. And now he has the evidence of the existence 
of the living God through this miracle of, prep, of preservation. And he's converted. And he's brave enough to declare that publicly, verse 25, by writing to all throughout his empire. Verse 26, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Now, in coming out with this, what Darius is encapsulating is a theology of the whole book of Daniel. And in a song of praise, he summarizes what God had just done in chapter 6 and points forward to the theology, the message that is about to be unfolded in the rest of the book. So Darius has come to recognize a higher authority than himself. The Most High God, who is the living God, who controls the whole world, and is a truly universal God. As I said last week, I suspect the reason why Daniel chapter 2 to 6 are written in Aramaic, which is unique in the Bible, is because those stories were circulated amongst the Babylonians who can read Aramaic because that was the lingua franca, the language of commerce of, that, of the world in the Middle East at that particular time. So the Most High God, who is the living God, controls the whole world. He's a truly universal God. And Daniel and the Jews, we know, prospered under the reign of Darius, the Mede, who is otherwise Cyrus the Persian. And his life, Daniel's life, is a testimony to God's faithfulness and his own integrity. Now, what are the lessons that we can take away from this remarkable story? Well, first of all, obviously, Daniel's character and competence. He is exemplary as a disciple of the Most High God. You know, he has impressed a number of different monarchs over a 60-year period. That's the kind of person that you want as a Christian in public affairs at any time of history. His character is so consistent he is trustworthy. If I asked you to do something and you agreed, would you do it? That's what being trustworthy is, that you keep your word. He's incorruptible. He will not be bribed or bought off. He is competent. He was the head of the government. He had the ability to collect all the taxes necessary to run this massive empire. And he had trust in God. He took God at his word and believed that God would deliver on his promises. But did he think he was Teflon-coated, that God could be relied upon to keep him from all harm? That if a crisis like Daniel 6 would arise, that God would miraculously get him out of it? Well, I think not. 
He, like the heroes of Hebrews 11, is commended for his faith in God. And the narrator also says, verse 23, of Daniel's deliverance, that it was because he trusted in his God. You know, as far as he's concerned, it could have, uh, that could have been it. Well, miracles. It's interesting to look at miracles when they crop up because actually there are vast chapters of the Bible covering loads of periods of time when there aren't any. It's quite interesting to observe where they do pop up in the Bible because then we learn what their purpose is. Moses, there's obviously a lot around him in his dealings with Pharaoh. There's the ten plagues, which really is a miracle of of timing ten times over. Moses said, this is going to happen, and it did. All to demonstrate to Pharaoh the existence of the living God for whom Moses was his spokesman. Deuteronomy 34.10. Since then, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And then uh, you get Elijah and Elisha, who are the first of the batch of prophets which cover the period from about the 10th century BC to around the time of Daniel. Both Elijah and Elisha raised a person each from the dead. And prophets like Daniel were in that tradition. In the New Testament, we have, of course, Jesus, who is recorded on 34 different occasions to have performed miracles, either one or hundreds. And then there are the apostles. And on ten occasions they are recorded as performing miracles. And Peter and Paul are recorded as raising a person from the dead each. Now why these people and why not everybody? Well, of Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews says, Hebrews 2, 4, This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, according to his will. So you see, what uh, is happening here is that God is putting his divine imprimatur, if you like, his seal of approval on what Jesus is doing. Then we get the apostles. If you take Acts 4, for example, after Peter had miraculously restored to normality, the beggar who we read had been crippled from birth, the religious leaders could see that a miracle had happened, Acts 4.14. But Peter says in 4.10, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the one in whom salvation is found. Salvation is found in no one else. So miracles are God's way of attesting his messengers, called prophets in the Old Testament and apostles in the New Testament. In fact, uh, what marks an apostle, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, is that he is able to perform miracles. 
no doubt that they, you know, the kinds of things which nobody would be able to, there's no possibility of ambiguity or a conclusion that they are just coincident. They are things where somebody who has, for example, got an absolutely deformed, leprous hand, and they say, you're healed, boom, and they are. So you're left with choosing whether it's a benign or malevolent source. Miracles go with God's revelation through his messengers, and their message forms what is the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it is also a taste of the world to come, an age when his people will be vindicated, even if they're not vindicated in this life. Another thing about Daniel, which is exemplary, is the time that he spent with his God in prayer. He was regular. It was a daily discipline for him. Now, the Old Testament and the New Testament don't prescribe a frequency of prayer. We, like Daniel, are left to work it out ourselves. His posture. You can have quite fun going through the Bible, working out the different postures people take up in prayer. There isn't a kind of mandated one. Elijah prayed to God with his head between his legs. I could get the curate to demonstrate afterwards. It's, I'm not sure I could quite get down there to do it, that's why. But um, he, Daniel, knelt. In other words, his body language is demonstrating his humility. Then the direction to Jerusalem, because as I said, that's where his hope lies. Daniel 9 tells us that he was well aware that the exile was for punishment for their sins. So he would have had confession. We know from the prophet Jeremiah that the exile was to be of a limited duration. And Daniel knew that, and he pleaded that the exiles would return. The first year of Darius was an opportune time. It turned out to be so. And who knows how Daniel's prayers for that affected God's timetable. So his prayers are not some kind of self-indulgent, um, navel-gazing kind of introspective meditation, nor are they solely concerned for himself and his feelings He's not concerned with them. He is praying on behalf of his people for God to deliver on his promises. And he's resolute in doing that three times a day. Next we learn from Darius. If he's going to be used by God in restoring the Jews to Jerusalem, he is going to have to change. Sure, God raised him up to replace Belshazzar and the Babylonians but to actively and enthusiastically, as he came to do, to enable that return to take place, he would need to realise and then recognise and then realign himself with that greater power, that of the Most High God. And that he gradually came to do. He came to realise that... Uh, even as an absolute monarch, which he was, that he did not have unlimited power, for he was constrained both by his court and his conscience. 
only God himself rules without the constraints of time or of having to give an account to anyone. Yet God's power can be shared with human beings who he allows to cooperate with him and to whom he gives authority if they're humble. And lastly, the Most High God himself. His ducks, you're probably realizing, are lining up. He's getting in a position where after the 70 years of discipline in exile, the people of God are going to get back on track. But here in Daniel, there is a foreshadowing of something greater. You may have picked up hints of it as we've gone through the story. Jesus, like Daniel, was falsely accused by a powerful clique of conspirators. Jesus, like Daniel, was condemned. Jesus, by what was uh, called in John 19.7, according to the law, he must die. For Daniel, it was according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians. In both cases, with Darius and Pontius Pilate, the ruler didn't look to a higher law, and yet he was in some ways, both of them, aware of it, but not strong enough for them to override their legal systems. Unlike Daniel, no angel appeared to prevent Jesus going to the cross. Yet because not only was he like Daniel, the innocent victim, but the everlasting king of whom Daniel in the next chapter goes on to speak about, the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. And so angels appear at another den. Another stone is rolled away. And death is rendered impotent. Our salvation on the day of resurrection has been achieved. Amen.